Thank you for downloading this podcast from BJOG. Here in the Northern Hemisphere, the uh, days of December are getting darker and herald the end of the year. And it's uh, this time of the year that it may be useful to reflect and look forward to the future. Uh, One positive thought is that the progress that is being made in reducing child and maternal mortality year on year continues. There are two recent reports from the World Health Organization that indicate that deaths of children have more than halved since 1990 and that maternal mortality ratio has also declined by about 38% from 2000 to 2017. One of the most common causes for maternal death is severe bleeding after childbirth. Most of us as obstetricians will at some point have used some kind of balloon device in atonic postpartum hemorrhage as an adjunct to uterotonics to control bleeding. I remember that as a trainee my preference was a sink steak and Blakemore tube. This was originally designed for the management of bleeding of esophageal varices and it was very helpful that this could always be found in the gastroenterology ward which was just next door to where I worked. In low-income settings, the condom catheter is the cheapest option of such balloon device. In this December issue of BJOG, Anger and colleagues report an important trial where they used a stepped wedged cluster design of condom balloon tamponade. The results are completely counterintuitive. Not only did the introduction of the condom catheter in these settings not improve maternal outcomes, it actually increased the rate of PPH-related surgery and death. The question is whether this means we should abandon this procedure altogether because of a lack of effect. There is a thoughtful mini-commentary by Andrew Weeks and his team, which tries to put this finding into context and also discusses the dilemma for those of us who use balloons in practice. In another relevant study on hemorrhage from Sweden, Thurn and colleagues cross-linked births over 20 years to the transfusion database. They defined massive blood transfusion and found that this was really rare in this setting. They usefully separated risk factors that were present beforehand, such as abnormal placentation, preeclampsia, abruption and previous cesarean birth, from those risk factors that occurred at the time of birth, like uterine rupture, atonic uterus and caesarean delivery. Perhaps the findings are not that surprising, but the ability to really provide accurate estimates for the incidence and risk factors is extremely relevant. They also find a rising incidence, 30% between the first 10-year period and the second 10-year period of the study. This is an important observation and warrants further investigation. The December issue also includes an article from our BJOG-inspired series, reflecting on how effective simulation training in obstetrics can help to provide more effective emergency care during hemorrhage. Every day we see clinical opinions that vary widely, between countries, between neighbouring hospitals, or even sometimes clinicians working in the same unit. We all like to think 
that our medical opinion is formed only by hard evidence. But, in fact, we often use intuition, experience or perceived logic. This is neatly illustrated by Bonnet and colleagues in an exhaustive review of studies reporting on the correlation between the alert line on the partograph and the occurrence of adverse birth outcomes. The authors found very wide variation in the percentage of women crossing the alert line, and none of the studies really suggested that the action line on the partograph was accurate enough to make it a useful diagnostic tool for management. Our issue also includes two uh, debate pieces. One asks whether we should offer induction of labour to all women at term, and the other examines whether pre-implantation genetic screening should be used in all IVF cycles when a woman is over the age of 35. Reading both sides of an argument makes us aware of the latest evidence, but also how interpretation of this evidence still plays a role in our patient care. So can these papers help to further improve maternal and newborn well-being? I hope so. In response to the two recent WHO reports, the Director General, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, said, In countries that provide everyone with safe, affordable, high-quality health services, women and babies survive and thrive. This is the power of universal health coverage. Safe and high-quality care must rely on evidence, and BJOC will continue to serve women and their carers worldwide by disseminating such evidence in 2020. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to this podcast from BJOG. We have been reporting the best research in women's health since 1902. We are keen to hear your views. Tweet us at BJOG Tweets. You can find more podcasts at www.bjog.org.